0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Will, and I am one of the pastors here at New Line Press, and it's it's good to see you, good to worship with you. We are finishing up our series on the book of Joel, and we'll be looking at essentially the entire chapter 3, but we're going to be reading the beginning and then the end of chapter 3. So if you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of his word. I'm going to read from Joel chapter 3, starting with verse 1 to 3, and then we're going to jump down to the middle and read 13 to 21. But this is God's word for us. I pray that you'd be blessed and encouraged by the reading of his word. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, "'Because they have scattered them among the nations "'and have divided up my land "'and have cast lots for my people "'and have traded a boy for a prostitute "'and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it.'" And then in verse 13, "'Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. "'Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. "'The vats overflow, for their evil is great. "'Multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision. "'For the day of the Lord is near "'in the, day, in the valley of decision.'" The sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain in Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never pass through it, and in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. You could go ahead and be seated at this time. <clears throat> Well, we've been looking at the book of Joel and considering how does an ancient prophet speak to modern-day people like you and I today. When they're speaking to an agrarian culture in the book of Joel, many of us are sort of entrepreneurial or corporate. And what does it mean for us living in Orange County to turn back to God for the restoration of our lives? And as we conclude this chapter, Joel essentially gives us an end-time picture of what the judgment day may look like. And for us, it may seem a little bit foreign because we are a culture that tends to live in the now. But Joel is telling us we need to be a people who live in light of eternity. Now, the way I break up this passage for us today and helping us to understand the judgment day of the future and how does that relate to us today is basically how Joel breaks up chapter three. And he does it basically through time but also geography. In other words, he breaks up the passage into three parts by chronology, but also topography. Now, what do I mean by this? And the three points for today are essentially this. One, he says there will be a day of judgment. Secondly, there will be a day of decision. And then thirdly, we'll see a day of restoration. That's the chronology in time. But he captures the same point, but he does it geographically. And say, first, there will be judgment in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Secondly, there will be a day of verdict in the valley of decision. And then lastly, he says, there will be an abundance of restoration, a reassurance and hope in the valley of Shittim, the mountain that overflows, so I want to look at each of these three days and walk with you through the different valleys that Joel brings us to so that you and I can capture and receive really this vision that Joel has for us, for God's people, and for this culture and land. So let's consider this together. First, Joel brings us through the valley of Jehoshaphat. It's the day of judgment. Read with me once again verses 1 to 3 because this is where I'm capturing this first point. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage of Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. So this is the Valley of Jehoshaphat. This is the Day of Judgment. And typical to the prophetic writers, they're poetic. So Jehoshaphat actually means Yahweh has judged. And the time place in which this occurs is future because in verse 1 it says, at that time and in those days. So he's saying there's going to be a restoration, there's going to be a hope. He's painting a picture with crystal clarity for you to know this is the Day of judgment that whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're old or young, whether you're a majority minority culture, whatever it may be, everyone's gonna stand before the judgment of God. So I wanna talk about a little bit about this notion of judgment and then bring it back to the judgment of God at the end days. Because whether you recognize it or not, judgment is inextricably tied up to our humanity and also inextricably tied up to our culture and society. Well, what do I mean by this? Well, first, if you're honest, our culture is really conflicted about judgment because on the one hand, no one likes to be judged, especially if it's negative. You don't want to be examined, you don't want to be assessed, but at the same time, especially in this day and age, we have strong convictions and assessments about people's political ideology, preferences, job choice, parenting styles. So our culture is really conflicted. And what they say in years past and a little bit today is that we live in a culture that is sort of anti-judgment or what they call a relativistic culture. They say that we're sort of moving out of that relativism, but I think it's still a little bit in there in terms of how our culture lives. Relativism basically means this, what works for you may not work for me. So don't judge me. Don't take your values and your perspective on life and impose them on me. It looks good because in the name of tolerance and inclusion, it says don't judge anybody, just include everyone so that we could be one big and happy family. That in some sense, you don't judge because whether preferences or morality, they're all determined by cultures. So every culture has its own morality and perspective on life. But also individual experience, which is more Western America, that I have my life, I have my preferences, don't impose your morality, don't judge me, don't assess my life. And that's what they call relativism because morality and perspectives are relative to your experience and culture. But one thing that we could quickly talk about is that that was a little bit more prevalent according to some sociologists in years past. But it's actually not intellectually honest because whenever you say include everyone, don't judge anyone, that in of itself is an absolute moral statement. It's a very strong judgment statement. It's just couched in sort of tolerant language. Because whenever somebody says, don't judge anyone, include everyone, it's actually very divisive. It's very exclusionary. And it's not intellectually honest because it's falling apart on its own premises. It's in of itself a very strong judgment statement. But moving away from that, they say, in our day and age, and you can recognize this, especially in light of Elder Johnny's prayer, we live not in just in a relativistic culture, but a polarized culture. Masks, COVID, Roe versus Wade, there are strong indications that our country has been more politically divided. Why? Because we judge each other so strongly out of hatred and out of personal ideology. And so we recognize that judgment is part and parcel to who we are as a society. used to be relativistic, still sort of is, a little bit more polarized. We have strong judgments and strong assessment about different people's ideology, ways of life, personal preferences. But let me try to go deeper, a little bit closer to home. Judgment is not just about our culture, but it is built into the fabric of humanity. In other words, Your everyday life is about judgment and assessment. We say things, don't judge me because we don't want to be negatively judged. But we also know that in life, everyone is going to judge each other. They say, especially among the younger generations, among the millennials, they say that millennials are characterized by passion, by innovation, immense creativity, spurring and being catapulted out of this digital age. But they also want to be highly authentic and to be recognized as a unique individual. So they say, and no offense to millennials, that yes, you are actually contributing to our culture in a very unique way, but at the same time, you desperately want to be judged and assessed as being authentic and uniquely individual. It's part of who that generation is. They just don't like to be judged negatively, they want to be judged favorably. That's all of life, friends, this idea of assessment. Schools will judge you by giving grades and the degrees they confer. We want judgment from our friends to be loved and accepted. We want judgment from bosses at work for performance and for promotions. Leaders at church, you want our judgment for spiritual maturity and for leadership. What it tells us is that whether in culture relativistically, or in today's culture in a polarized context, or in everyday life in your essential humanity, being human and made in God's image tells us that our sense of self, our sense of identity is completely dependent upon a judgment that's outside of ourselves. It's actually the way that we're created to be because we're dependent creatures. It's part of our humanity as well as our culture and society. In our passage here today, in verses 1 to 3, is talking about a judgment that's going to be final, climactic, and authoritative. And what that tells us is that it's given to us as an encouragement for God's people that this final judgment on the last day in verses one to three should be a deep hope and reassurance because what it promises us is that evil will be done, justice will be had, and as people made in the image of God, when we have that final judgment coming vertically from God, it'll finally allow us to feel and to express and to hear the final judgment of our identity and sense of worth that we could be free to express who we're called to be as a people of God made in his image. So this judgment, although it sounds scary, is not only part of our culture, but also is bound up with a real hope for today. You want to be who you are, you want to be authentic, you want to be free to be who you are, to fly in life. Part of the way that that's designed to be in life is to realize you need an assessment, an approval, a judgment outside of yourselves, And the only climactic way to get that is going to be in the judgment of God for you, given to us in verses 1 to 3. Now, a little bit deeper in the passage, then, if that's the case, why is God judging people in verses 1 to 3? And in a nutshell, when you read verses 2 to 3, God is making this final, end-time, climactic judgment negatively to God's enemies for a simple reason. He's judging people for how they treat other people. Isn't that interesting? He's not judging it necessarily for politics, for power, or war. He's saying I'm judging these people for how they treat other people. So in verse 2, he's judging them for dividing God's people. A little bit different, but he's saying God's enemies come into this world, they scatter the people around. It's about division, it's about fracturing a community. And then secondly, he judges them because they love pleasure, more than people. That's why they'll sell their boys for prostitutes and sell their daughters for wine so they could get drunk. So how, in God's estimation and the economics of God's kingdom, how does he judge people in the end times? The final times. He judges you and I as well for how we treat other people. If we choose personal pleasure over treating our neighbor, if we choose really the if we divide God's people because we have a personal agenda. So before we go to our second point, I quickly just want to give you a description of maybe you're one of these two types of people. You divide God's people or you rather choose pleasure over people. One question I just have for you this morning is, are you a divisive person? Are you a divisive person? Just be honest. You don't have to raise your hands. Just be honest before... You and God, are you a divisive person? Because if you are, then you're like verse 2, and God's final judgment comes to people in terms of how they divide God's people in the community. Let me give you a couple of thoughts, sort of descriptions of what a divisive person looks like. And this may or may not be you, but a divisive person has a hard time maintaining relationships and friendships. So if you look back in your life and you realize you have Consistent flow of falling out with different relationships or family members, you may be a divisive person. A divisive person is motivated more by being right than by being loving because you care about your convictions. A divisive person frequently finds themselves in arguments. Do you like to quarrel? Do you like to push each other's buttons? Do you find yourself always in a debate or always in an argument? Because divisive people always have an issue in someone else's ideology. Divisive people tend to defend their convictions with the same degree of intensity. So it's not just defending the essentials, it's defending the non-essentials and even those things that no one cares about with the same degree of intensity. Divisive people are quick to speak, slow to listen. Your first instinct is to criticize, and your last instinct is to encourage. Divisive people, in other words, tend to be strong on truth, but really weak on love. And so, if this describes you, all you have to look at is the relationships around you now and the history of relationships in the past. And I see it all the time in the church. There are times that I'm also divisive, but this is what God judges people because he cares so much about loving your neighbor and the unity of God's community. But he doesn't just judge people for being divisive, he judges them for choosing pleasure or preferences over your neighbor. That's why they sold their children for wine and for a prostitute, for pleasure. We won't spend too much time on this, but things that you could think about in choosing pleasure over people or preferences over people, it doesn't just have to be self-indulgence or this sort of hedonistic approach to society and your personal preference to indulge in every desire of the now and to indulge every passion of the now. Certainly that's the application of verse three. But you could go deeper and people who reflect verse three are people who are users because you use people for a personal agenda people who are operators, people who only want to navigate politics to get and push an agenda. You are a manipulator. There is a purpose and plan that you have for your life that is self-concentrated, self-indulgent, self-absorbed, and you will use people as pawns in order to achieve or receive what you personally desire. And if you use people in that sort of mechanistic way, then Joel is saying God's judgment is going to come to you. So he judges people for how they treat people. If you're divisive or you choose a personal agenda or pleasure over other people. But that leads us to our second point. Because in some ways, verses 2 to 3, that's all of us. We've all done some version of this. And that leads us to say everyone is implicated in this. It leads us to the value of decision, also translated as the day of verdict. Decision day. It's a day of decision. Read with me verse 14 multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Now, multitudes, that word there is interesting because it also has a root word for a verb called roaring or rumbling. So it's this idea that so many people are coming around that there's a rumbling. Multitudes and multitudes. That word there for decision essentially means decisive action. They're saying, I'm gonna gather everyone into the Valley of Decision and there's gonna be a day of verdict. We're gonna show what your final decision was made in life. You know how sometimes in our culture, they'll say decisions, decisions, decisions. And you know, I, I read the story about how an older couple were going, gross, uh, were going shopping at the mall and the wife couldn't make up her mind about the hat that she wanted to buy say decisions, decisions, decisions. And the husband got frustrated and said, hurry up and just choose a hat. If you can't make a decision on the small things, how are you going to ever make decisions on the bigger things? Well, there's a complicated situation. The husband probably should have been a little bit more patient. But just as much as what is bound up in our culture and everyday life are everyday decisions. In this verse, it's decisions for God's enemies to stop oppressing God's people. It's decisions for you and I to repent and turn back to God. But one point that I'm trying to convey from the second point is that one thing that hopefully we can realize is that your everyday decisions ripple into eternity. Just think about that for a moment. Your everyday decisions, friends, your everyday decisions that seem ordinary, mundane, normal, the Bible is implying in the second point that your everyday decisions have ripple effects into eternity. Well, let me try to make my point, because what does the Bible say about this, and what am I trying to say? You make decisions, but your decisions also sort of shape and make you. Now, I'm not saying that you could manufacture your identity and who you are essentially, but your decisions have a shaping effect on who you are. That's why Winston Churchill once said, we build houses, and houses also build us. And what he means by that is that we can obviously build a house, but inside the house, we develop a home. We do life there. We make memories. We may have friends and families. There are tears of pain, but joy of laughter. There's heartache and also happiness. And so you build a house, but what you do in the house also shapes you. And I think Joel is implying in this day of decision is that you make decisions, but your decisions also make you, they shape you. Now, C.S. Lewis is brilliant in various of his publications that bring this out, but one of the points that he makes is that good and evil both increase and compound over time. Good and evil both increase at compound interest. And what he's trying to say is that even the little decisions you make, the decisions I make, on an everyday level have infinite importance because the small little act that you do today can capture a strategic turning point in your life that'll lead to greater love and greater acts of kindness down the road. And an apparently trivial indulgence, an openness to temptation and lust or anger can really build a bridge and a railway line in which Satan and your sin can launch an attack and open yourself up to the path of destruction. Everyday decisions can compound good or evil with interest. Now, a simple way that this works, and maybe some of you could resonate, is that I'm always battling like the way I eat because I eat horribly. I love fast food. I like McDonald's Big Mac. I like Arby's roast beef. I like pizza. That's my natural tendency to eat in my dietary habits. I love Doritos and chips. I love donuts. I love, I love everything that's just bad for you. When I try to eat healthier because I'm getting older and gaining weight, I really try to be steadfast, but sometimes at night when I just have desire to eat, I'll open up, okay, just a little bit, a bag of Doritos. And then the next morning rolls around, it's like, well, I ate the Doritos, so I'll eat a chocolate muffin for breakfast today. Well, I ate a chocolate muffin, so, okay, I'll just have an In-N-Out burger for lunch. And after lunch, I'll get a couple slices of pizza. And then at night, I'll eat some ice cream and then it opens it up to this cycle because you sort of get self-indulgent, desensitized, and it all starts with the one decision that you thought was small and insignificant, but it opens it up to a path. And I think that's what Joel is trying to say, that your small decisions, whether a small act of kindness or an openness to a small, seemingly inconclusive act of temptation or sin, to set the trajectory, and it begins to roll in a culture and a tendency in your life. C.S. Lewis was so great at this because he wanted to appropriate the gospel in the ordinary and the everyday. And his deeper point is that the ordinary is the stuff that most of us live in. So if the ordinary life is for ordinary people like you and me, that means the ordinary decisions that make up the environment that we live in, 99.9% of our lives, it means the ordinary decisions will build up and have an eternal impact. Life today is lived in the presence of eternity. In other words, every moment of life, we are either advancing to hell or we are advancing to heaven. And all those high stakes are played out in the everyday, ordinary, mundane decisions that you make. You see, friends, every moment doesn't have equal weight, but every decision has a little bit of weight of glory because it compounds with interest, good or evil. Every choice counts, friends. Every choice contributes to determining what we ultimately love. And Joel here is not talking about the everyday decisions, although it's implied in that a life of decisions where you're choosing Jesus and living for him or you're choosing yourself and living for hell. Joel's implying this, but he's saying, I'm giving you a picture of the end time. It's the day of decision, and we're going to have a verdict to show the culmination of the everyday, mundane decisions that you made and how it rolled and snowballed into this final day in verse 13. And he's going to say, This is the day of verdict. Where are you going to end up? I have a simple point, friends. The everyday decisions that you make. Do you know where you're headed? Because the day of decision is coming to you. The everyday decisions. The little thoughts that you have. The little digs you make at people. The little corners that you cut. Inconsequential, we think, but Joel is saying they could build up for this final day. Do you know where you're headed? I just read a story recently about Albert Einstein. Not sure if it's true, but Albert Einstein was riding on a train. And the guy who the conductor was walking down the middle of the aisle collecting people's tickets, punching a hole, and he came up to Dr. Einstein, and he couldn't find his ticket. looked in his pockets, looked inside of his jacket, and after a while, the conductor is saying, Dr. Einstein, we all know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. And then he moved on and walked down to the next car. He looked back, and he realized Dr. Einstein was looking on the floor, looking back in his jacket, his briefcase, looking underneath the chairs, on all four, and so the conductor ran back and says, Dr. Einstein, it's okay. I know that you bought a ticket. And then apparently the story goes where Dr. Albert Einstein said to the train conductor, I know who I am too, but I need my ticket because I have no idea where I'm going. You may make decisions. Do you know where you're going? The decisions of every day don't relent Be intentional. Not every decision will be life-changing. We live in the ordinary, but every decision has a weight of glory. And for us who make decisions and we strive, and when we fail, we come to God in repentance, what it shows us here in this picture in verse 16 is that for God's people, a judgment will come for this day of decision. It will be righteous and holy judgment for those who make decisions for themselves, but for people who try to make decisions for God and for our neighbor, God will be for us a refuge and a stronghold. This wrath, this judgment, that's really scary. He's saying for those who live for God, make decisions for him. He'll be a refuge. He'll cover you from that. He'll shield you. He'll embrace you and absorb himself into you. And he'll be your stronghold so that in the chaos of life, the uncertainty and the polarization of our current context, he'll be your anchor your stronghold, for the day of decision. And this leads us to our last point. So we looked at the day of judgment, the day of decision, and now he's saying for those who believe in Jesus, there will be a day of restoration. It comes to us in the Valley of Shittim. Read with me verses 17 to 18. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion. My holy mountain and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never pass through again. Pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Now it's interesting that in this final picture of abundance, it just mentions drinks and liquids, it doesn't mention food. Part of that is because in a farming culture, water was everything. You could get food only if you have water, because you could water and grow crops and products. You could feed and water your animals. Wherever water is, life will be there. So here is an abundance. It's a mountain and all kinds of different drinks. There's milk, there's wine, and there's going to be water. And it culminates in this stream that will flow from this mountain and come down to the Valley of Shittim. It's a picture of abundance. But do you know what the greatest blessing is in this day of restoration? It's to be restored in your relationship with God. That's why verse 17 begins so that you will know. So the mountain and all this wine and milk and water is given to you. He's abundant and generous in his heart. That's God. But he's saying the ultimate picture and the ultimate blessing that I want to convey is that this mountain that's overflowing is given to you so that you know. I am the Lord, your God, who dwells with you in Zion. He'll be with you forever, and you have this relationship. A couple of weeks ago, I went to our PCA. Our church is a PCA church. We went to this uh, national meeting of about 3,000 pastors and elders, and we talk about deep business. We get encouraged by one another. We vote on essential, what they call overtures that dictate how we think about doctrine and life in the church, and it was interesting because I was in the hotel with my, a couple of my staff, Pastor Paul and Pastor Andrew. Um, but we're in this hotel. It's a nice place, but the beds are really small. And there are two full-size beds. It wasn't king size. It wasn't even queen. And in my head, I'm like, oh, my gosh, how are we going to do this? know, I'm willing to sit on the floor. And, but the Pastor Paul and Pastor Andrew, Paul and Andrew, they're nice about it. You know, They're a little bit ageist. So they're like, okay, you're the older one, Will. You get your own bed and then they shared the bed by themselves on a full-size bed. These guys are pretty built, so literally I'm watching them and they're shoulder to shoulder on this full-size bed. Their legs are leaning onto each other, they couldn't really roll around. And we did this for three nights and I was like, man, I feel so bad for them. My point is this, I'm sure they enjoy their time. We were living in a hotel. We're living in a hotel but you can only dwell at home, where you plant your roots, and this is life. When it says that God is our Lord and God, he's gonna dwell forever. He's not just living with you. He's not just hitting up a hotel with you. He's gonna dwell with you forever. That's the restoration. Finally, we get to be free and exposed and accepted and loved in the righteousness of Jesus so that God dwells with us forever. And when he dwells with us, do you know what he's saying? We'll get to know him intimately as our Lord and God. Look at the pronouns. He says, I am the Lord, your God. It's intimate, it's covenantal, it's personal. There's an old Indian saying that says, the longest journey you'll ever make in your life is from your head to your heart. And I think that's what Joel is saying, because if you didn't realize this, when you look at the word know in the Bible, about half the times that know is about cognitive information. You can know things about God. But the other half of the word conveys a sense of knowing someone or God in relationship, relationally. And both are real knowledge, and sometimes it's captured in the same word, this cognitive knowledge, but also this experience and relationship. But both of those concepts are conveyed in this relationship with God. He's saying you're not just gonna know things about me, but you're really going to know me as I dwell in Zion. Because there's something different about knowing things about God and knowing God. Now for example, when you see someone's LinkedIn account or resume, you know things about a person but you won't really know the person unless you hang out with them and do life with them, or at least meet them and have a meal with them. There's a difference, in other words, between knowing things about someone and knowing someone in a relationship. There's a difference between knowing something informationally and knowing something relationally. There's a difference between knowing a fact to a deeper level of knowing a person. God doesn't just want you to know that he exists and to know his attributes, both communicable and incommunicable. Although that's essential and it's real knowledge and it's important to us, God also wants you to know in his experience his character, his love, his forgiveness, and his grace. And so the greatest blessing of restoration is not just going to be the abundance of wine, milk, and water, even though that's going to blow our minds away. The greatest point of restoration is going to be A relational restoration. You'll know God intimately. That's why in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 3 there's a rebuke to Israel and says, the ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand because the whole goal of all salvation in Christianity, yes, there's heaven, there's forgiveness, and there's reconciliation. There's these fancy terms called justification and and sanctification, adoption, glorification. But at the end of the day, the goal of restoration is to say, you and I will know our covenant God and King. Receive His grace, His love, to know that He dwells within us and we work with Him and He serves us and we are in relationship together. Because you know, friends, there's a difference between knowing things informationally and knowing things relationally. There's there's a difference between knowing things on a resume versus knowing things in relationship. In other words, as J.I. Packer has said, there's a difference between knowing things about God and knowing God. Do you know God in this way that he speaks to you both individually and in church? Do you talk to God? Do you turn to him when you're hurting? When you feel guilty for your sin? When you need guidance for your life? Do you know God in this way? Sometimes it's odd when people come up to me, and I know they're well-intentioned, but they pretend like we're closer friends than we are. (laughs) Has that ever happened to you? A little bit closer, and they're like joking around in a way that's a little bit too personal or they'll talk about, no, we're, we've had so much history and we're really close and it becomes a little bit odd. Maybe it's just me, but I'm guessing that some of you had a similar relationship. But when that happens, in my head, I'm like, bro, you don't know me like that. <laughs> you no, know, don't joke around with me like that. We're not that intimate. We haven't done life together. God will never be like that with you for those of us who are Christian because God sent his son Jesus And he says, if you turn to my son Jesus, who has saved you and redeemed you, who's the fulfillment of this covenant that will forgive every sin of you, God is saying in my son Jesus, you will always know me like that. You'll always know me like that. True intimacy is not instant, but it comes in sustained relationship. You want to know God not just informationally, but relationally, because informationally, you can know God quickly. There's a a book I could give you. It's called Systematic Theology, You want to know things about God, there's an easy way to do this. It will take you a week. But to know God relationally takes time in a sustained relationship. That's why Eugene Peterson is right. He says this kind of relationship only comes in a long obedience in a sustained and same direction. You want that relationship to know him deeply so that you're joyful and happy. It only comes in long obedience by God's grace in the same direction. The everyday decisions that you make. I pray that all of us could have that restoration. The longest distance and journey that you'll ever travel may be the information in your head to the experience of your heart. But the good news for us is that Christ made a longer journey from heaven to earth, to the cross, back to heaven. And because he made that U-shaped journey, we easily, and in time, will make the longest journey in our life from head to heart, in long obedience, in the same direction. Friends, there is a day of judgment coming, friends there is a day of decision that's going to happen and for those of us in jesus the hope and joy is to know that friends there will be a day of restoration where we will say with all our hearts i know that you are my lord my god let's turn to god in prayer bow your heads with me father we thank you so much for the grace that we receive Thank you for your son, Jesus, who changes us and empowers us and enables us to grow. Help us to live in light of the day of holy judgment, but realize that our judgment that we receive from you for those of us in Christ is a judgment of affirmation, a judgment of acceptance, a judgment of love. And help us to be broken and compassionate so that we can share the gospel of Jesus for everyone who will be judged in that great day. We thank you so much and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.